Chapel. Glad you all decided to come out and join us here on a kind of a, a warm Wednesday, I feel like. It seems like we were fighting the, the cold for so long. People had to brave that to come out, and now we're at the opposite. I'm sure we'll be complaining about it being cold again here soon enough, so we won't, won't go down that road. Uh, so I'm going to start off tonight uh, with a little bit of an illustration that ties into what we're talking about. Um, we'll kind of see how that connects a little bit later in the sermon. But uh, this, this particular story happened a few years ago. Um, my wife was pregnant with our first daughter at the time. And so we had uh, doing some work at the house and ended up um, having some problems with some mold that we discovered on some renovations. And so we ended up throwing away our couch that was in the living room. And um, at this point in time, you know, uh, my wife being pregnant, we decided this would be a good time for us to buy a new mattress as well for our room. And so uh, my wife, you know, does the research, finds out, you know, what she wants. And, you know, me being a husband, I kind of just go along with that, you know, so I can, I can sleep wherever. I'm not too picky on this. I'm not carrying another human being inside me. So I have a little more leeway on where I sleep. Um, so she, uh, thank you, she finds the one she wants, you know, figures out what type she wants and searches around to see who has the best price. And uh, she decides that the best deal on the type of mattress we want to get is at Ikea. All the husbands, you can shudder on cue there. So, um, we, uh, so we do the research on this, we figure this out. So, okay, we're planning this out, we're going to go do this. So we have, you know, I have a day off coming up. And uh, so we're planning ahead, and I'm, I'm looking online, and I'm looking at the specs for this thing. And I'm like, okay, you know, here's, it's, you know, this long, this wide, you know, standard queen-size mattress. And the weight they have on there as well, and it says it weighs 130 pounds. I'm like, that's got to be a typo. A 130-pound mattress? That can't be right. And um, so my wife calls the store. You know, she asks their customer service, hey, you know, I'm interested in, you know, this model number, whatever it is. And I'm just wondering, you know, how does this come packaged? You know, is it all rolled up in a giant roll like, you know, most of the memory foam type ones come or um, some other way? And the, the customer service person on the other end tells her, oh, all of our mattresses come rolled that way. You know, that's, that's, they're all like that. You don't have to worry about that. And we're like, okay, that's nice. And so we're thinking through this and we're thinking, all right, so we could probably fit this in the back of our station wagon. I think if we fold down the seats, this could work. And so I think about that a little more, and I, you know, tell my parents we're going to be doing that this weekend. And my dad says, well, why don't you just come down here and borrow my truck for the day? Well, that might be easier. So we go ahead with that plan, fortunately. We borrow the pickup. And um, so we drive, you know, make the trek all the way down to the south side of Denver. And, um, you know, the, the arduous task of wandering through the labyrinth of Ikea, trying to find the three things you actually want, hidden amongst the thousands of things that nobody actually needs. And um, so after what seemed like an eternity doing that, we, you know, finally get, get the other things we want. And uh, we uh, get to customer service and we have them, you know, drag out the mattress we want. And, um, the guy brings it out on a cart, and it is most definitely not rolled in a nice little roll. He brings out this large, tall, long, floppy thing that definitely weighed at least the 130 pounds it said on the website. And um, keep in mind, so my wife is probably like six or seven months pregnant at this point. And so we get our mattress and our other things, and you know we go down to the loading dock, and I pull the pickup around, and um, I'm trying to wrestle this 
135-pound floppy monstrosity into the back of the pickup by myself, because my wife is at a point where she is, you know, not of much help. And this guy is a little ways down from us, and he's got, you know, a couple boxes. He probably bought like a coffee table and some towels or something. And he comes over, you know, he sees me struggling, fighting with this mattress, trying to get it, you know, underneath the ladder rack and in the back of the thing. And he says, I'll tell you what, you know, why don't you come here and help me with my stuff, and then I'll come over and help you with yours after that. He didn't need my help. He had, you know, again, a few small-ish things. I'm sure he could have managed. He took pity on us, and so uh, he helps us load this thing into the truck and um, get it in there, and then, uh, of course, this all takes way longer than we're planning, and so, you know, we go grab something to eat, and it's dark, and it's late, and we end up coming back into town, and I had to, to call a friend to help me unload it, and it was just this huge ordeal, so much bigger of a mess than I anticipated it being. And I think a lot of the times in life, we need help with our messes. There's stuff that we either didn't plan well for, things we didn't anticipate, or even mistakes we make. And we need somebody to look at us like that guy who was seeing me loading and say, you need a hand. There's, you know, you're not going to get this on your own. You need some help. And uh, that's so much of what God does for the people of Israel, uh, for us, that in this particular section of Judges, we're going to see some of the messes that the people of Israel have gotten themselves into, that through misunderstanding, through um, not using the information available to them wisely, that they end up facing a lot of issues and a lot of problems. But God is able and willing to step into that and to save people in the midst of their messes. And so that's what our focus point is for this evening, that God can and will deliver in the midst of our sinful messes. That when life is problematic, when we're seeing all of the ugly issues brought up by forgetting about God, by making mistakes, by choosing to follow our own will instead of that of God, that God is still able to step into the midst of that and deliver his people. And uh, so tonight, we're going to see God do that for Israel, that God is going to deliver Israel through an illegitimate son who is surrounded by miscreants and ne'er-do-wells and marked by poor decisions in his life. And God is still going to step into the midst of that and to save his people. Uh, so just a quick reminder here, book of Judges, uh, we've talked about a fair bit here. Um, so we see the, the cycle of Judges we've discussed a few times now, um, that Israel, the land has been conquered. They're dwelling kind of amongst all the Canaanites that they failed to fully defeat and drive out. And so that brings about a lot of problems for them, um, that they begin to adopt the worship and the sinful practices of the people around them. God sovereignly sends or allows a people group to oppress Israel to remind them that turning away from God doesn't go well. They repent or call out to God for help. God sends a judge or a leader to save them. And for a while, things are good, and then they forget and start all over again. And uh, so tonight, we're going to be looking at Judges chapters, or chapters 11 and 12. However, uh, if you remember last week, uh, the very end of chapter 10 actually ties in very closely with where we're going to be tonight. Uh, so I'm going to read... Judges chapter 10, verse 17. 
and 18. It says, when the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So chapter 10 ended with the people of Israel being oppressed by the Ammonites and looking for a leader, for someone who would lead them in battle to free them from the oppression they were experiencing by the Ammonites. Um, Again, this is a mess of their own making. We studied a fair bit last week about Israel's idolatry, that they had begun to worship the false gods of not only the people living among them, but the nations that were surrounding Israel outside their borders, that they had turned away from God, forsaken the worship of him, and God was not pleased. And so they were suffering because of this. The Ammonites were oppressing them because of their idolatry. And so they cry out to God and they stop worshiping these false gods and God hears their cries. It said in uh, chapter 10, verse 16, that God became impatient over the misery of Israel. And so they're crying out, they're looking for a leader and that's where chapter 11 begins. So Judges 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. And so we see the people of Israel, they're being oppressed. They've cried out to God for help. They're looking for a leader, for someone God would send to help them. And they find a rather unlikely candidate here in Jephthah. We're told that Jephthah was a mighty warrior, that he was known for his ability in battle, but also that he was the son of a prostitute, uh, that he was the result of sinful mistakes, an illegitimate child of someone living a very sinful life in Israel. Uh, We're told a little bit about Jephthah's past in this, that he was the son of Gilead, uh, the man the city was named after. And we're also told that he had siblings. Uh, In verse 2, it says that Gilead's wife also bore him sons. Um, It says that when they grew up, they were not so happy about this situation, Um, that he had his, you know, legitimate family with his wife. He also had this other son that was born him by a prostitute. And so he grows up in this home with his brothers and sisters. But when they become older, uh, they decide, in verse 2 there, his brothers tell him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So we don't know if this is, you know, some displeasure over the sins of their father or if this is purely practical. They're saying, hey, we've got this inheritance from dad. He's gone now. We're going to split up all his stuff amongst the sons, as was the custom. If we get rid of one son, that means all the other sons get that much more. So either way, uh, this is, again, not a great past for Jephthah. Um, He was an illegitimate child. Um, that he was cast out of his family at some point, and then he had to go and live outside the land, we're told, in the land of Tob. 
and worthless fellows collected around him and went out with him. And so Jephthah becomes almost this sort of Robin Hood type figure, uh, that he's been cast out of society, he's been rejected by his family, he's living somewhere else, and he starts to kind of collect similar people, and he's surrounded by the people who aren't welcome other places, Um, that we don't know why these people were rejected, uh, what it was they did, if it was deserved or undeserved, uh, but he becomes kind of the, the leader of this band of people that really don't fit in anywhere else. So he's driven away from his family. He's known for being illegitimate son, but also for being a great warrior. And at, this is at the point when the Ammonites attack Israel and things begin to look a little bit differently. So in verse 4, begins after the time the Ammonites, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Jephthah is an interesting character as we read through this passage. So we see that he's an outcast, um, that he has really not a lot of great things going on in his life, that he's spending his life around those rejected by society. But we also see a lot of faith on the part of Jephthah. Um, that Jephthah acknowledges God's power and his will in all of this. And so the people realize they need help, they need a leader, they need someone who is known as a warrior. And they remember Jephthah, this outcast who's living outside the land, apart from the rest of the people. But again, he's known for being a warrior and at some level at least a leader. And so they go and they try to track him down and talk to him. And this almost plays out kind of like the plot of an old Western. There's this guy who's, he's, he's, you know, too harsh. He's too violent. He's not good enough, not proper enough to live in the town with the nice people. Um, that he's an outcast. And then the bad guys roll into town and they start causing problems. And all of a sudden, the skill set of this outcast is something that everybody else realizes they could use right about now. And so that's what the people of Gilead do. They go back to this man that they had driven away and they say, hey, we want you. Come here and help us. Be our leader. Uh, Jephthah's response is kind of questioning. In verse 7, he says, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? He's asking, you guys participated in the actions that brought me to where I am now, that you were part of the reason I'm not welcome here. Why do you want me back now? And so the people explain the situation that they need a man like Jephthah. And so Jephthah responds in verse 9, 
If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And so he acknowledges that this is going to be God's work if it happens. Uh, that the only way this is going to be accomplished is if it is God's will and if God's power is working through the situation. So Jephthah acknowledges God's work in this. And so the people agree with, with that assessment. Um, that they say in verse 10 that the Lord should serve as a witness. And so Jephthah becomes the leader. And if he succeeds in battle, he will continue to be the leader of the people of Gilead. At the end of verse 11, uh, we're told that Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Um, so in this situation, it sounds almost like he's t- taking some sort of an oath or he's uh, publicly professing what's been said, uh, that if things go this way, if God is faithful in this way, that this is what's going to happen, um, that he's publicly committing to this, that he's trusting God to work through the situation. Uh, so that's uh, one of the, the positive things we see in the life and in the work of Jephthah, that he was trusting in God's power, at least in this part of the situation. So Jephthah takes charge and we see what he does starting in verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me that you have come to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Verse 18. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them? Well, Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Arlor and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years. Why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. 
the Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to them. Okay, long section there. So essentially what's happening, Jephthah has taken leadership of this portion of the people of Israel, and he goes and he sends messengers to talk to the Ammonites, to demand an explanation, maybe to try to find some sort of peaceable agreement or end to the problems and the situation that they're facing at that moment. So the messengers go to the Ammonites and they ask, why are you here? Why have you come to fight against us? And the response they get in verse 13, uh, the king says, Israel, on coming from Egypt, took away my land. They're saying, Israel has taken this land from us after he left Egypt, and we want it back. Uh, So, again, a little geography of what's going on here. So we've got the Jordan River was kind of the original border of the promised land. And then Israel, when they came in, annexed or added on a portion on the far side of the Jordan River to the promised land. And so this is where uh, these men are living, where Jephthah is at. And they're separated a little bit from the rest of Israel by the river, but they're also living a little closer to some of these other countries, like the Ammonites. And so Jephthah responds by recapping the history of what had happened, uh, that he knew enough of the scriptures, the account of Israel's exodus from Egypt and the conquest of the promised land to know that this claim by the Ammonites was simply not true. So Jephthah responds in verse 15. He says, Israel did not take the land of Moab or of the Ammonites. He talks about their journey. He talks about how they had routed around to try to avoid some of these problems, but they were opposed by other groups. And then in verse 21 He talks about how God gave Israel Sihon, the current ruler of the land they were in now, and they took possession of all the land of the Amorites. Ammonites, Amorites, two different groups. So the Ammonites are saying this is their land. Jephthah is telling him, no, we conquered this from the Amorites 300 years ago. That We didn't even take this away from you. This was a completely different nations that it never belonged to you. So he continues his argument further. So we didn't take this land away from you. Um, that We took this land from the Amorites. And then he kind of ups the ante a little bit. In verse 24, he says, Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. So he's saying, we didn't take this land away from you. We took it from somebody else. God gave it to us when we took it from them. Won't your God give you whatever land you need? And he's saying, hey, if this is what you want, if this is what you need, A, it's not yours. B, our God gave it to us. C, Your God will give you whatever you need, right? If he's really a God, if he's really that good and that worthy of worship, shouldn't he be able to take care of you guys and give you all that you need, the land that you need? Um, He continues on in verse 25. He makes a reference to Balak. He says, Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them? So this ties all the way back to Numbers chapter 22. Uh, So if we remember the story of Balaam, 
the false prophet, the talking donkey, and uh, all these curses that he was supposed to make on the people of Israel. Balak was the king who hired Balaam to do that, that he was supposed to go and pronounce a curse over the people of Israel, that Balak realized that he could not stop Israel, he could not stop their God. And so he hired this sorcerer to try to go and put a curse on the people of Israel, that maybe he could stop them that way. Uh, we saw in, Judges, or in Numbers chapter 22 that that didn't really work out, that Balaam had this divine encounter that redirected him, that he agreed to speak only what God allowed him to speak, and God would only allow him to pronounce a blessing on the nation of Israel instead of a curse. That the people of Israel could not be stopped because God was on their side, and it didn't matter who was opposing them, that God was going to give them the land he wanted to give them, that he would protect them, that he would give them victory because of who he is. And it didn't matter who they were up against or who they were opposing. So Jephthah argues, again, continuing along these lines, um, that this is a problem that won't your God do what you give you what you need? And then he reminds them of the work of the God of Israel that Yahweh had done to give the people of Israel this land. And the next stage of his argument, in verse 26, he says, we've been here 300 years. You guys have had 300 years to figure this out. If this really was your land, why didn't you say something a couple hundred years ago? Uh, that we've been settled here for quite some time. If this really was stolen away from you, how has it not come up yet? That just seems unlikely and strange. And so he closes all of this out in verse 27. He says, I have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. And then he appeals to God. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Uh, so he's made this pretty convincing case that he's appealed to God. He has appealed to history, to the facts of what had happened in the past. And verse 28, we find the king of the Ammonites did not listen. Uh, that he didn't seem to care too much what was being said, what was going on. Uh, that they wanted the land, regardless of the truth in the situation, of whether or not they had a legitimate claim to it or a legitimate grievance against the people of Israel. And so I think as we read through this, there's a few interesting things to note. Uh, Baal, or excuse me, I'm reading the wrong spot here. Jephthah does a really good job of leading the people in this, of trying to seek a peaceable agreement, and also of knowing the right information. That Jephthah knew the history. He knew the past, what had happened. He knew at least some of God's word here. Uh, that all of this that happened was recorded earlier in Numbers. Um, that everything that happened, how they came to own the land. He knew the truth of what happened here. And so he opposed the lies that his enemy was bringing against him with the truth. And so for us today, we're going to be up against lies, that there's going to be issues that arise uh, that could be from people who are in opposition to us. It could be from the enemy himself 
who is the father of lies. And the best way to combat lies is with the truth. And so that's one thing Jephthah did so well here, that he knew the truth in this situation. He was able to bring that into the light, to present that to his enemies, and to make his case correctly and righteously because he knew the truth. And we're probably not going to face quite the same types of land disputes and all that. But it's important for us to know the truth, to be able to recall it, to bring it to light, and to draw upon those truths at the appropriate time when we face trials and temptations and opposition. That the best thing we can do with those is remind ourselves and others of what is true. And not doing that, forgetting the truth, not knowing the truth, is going to bring Jephthah a great deal of pain and difficulty in this next section. Judges 11, verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroar to the cities of Man- to the neighborhood of Maneth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So it's interesting that we see in this passage uh, Jephthah acknowledging God's power in the situation, that he knew that this would only work out favorably if it was God's will to do so. And in verse 29, we see that the spirit of the Lord was on Jephthah, that God empowered him and directed him at some level through this. And as God was doing that, that he passed through the lands, he went on and fought against the Ammonites. But somewhere along the way, he also made a grave mistake here. In verse 30, we're told that he made a vow to the Lord, that he promised to God that if God gave him the victory when he went home afterwards, returning as the victorious leader from battle, that he would offer whatever it was that came out to greet him as a sacrifice to God. And you would think that someone who knew God's power in this, who had sought God's favor in this, who had submitted himself to God's will in this situation, would have been able to trust God already with the situation. Uh, But he felt like at some level he needed some sort of extra assurance or something to make sure that God would be with him and would give him the victory. Uh, We see a few other instances of something along these lines throughout the scriptures. Uh, We actually see King Saul in 1 Samuel 14.24 make a similar promise that as he's pursuing his enemies, trying to finish them off, Uh, that he says that any man who eats anything before the end of this battle is going to be cursed. And we see King Saul brought a lot of trouble because of that in a similar way. And I think it's foolish for people to try to bargain 
with God. Uh, that we see people do that from time to time. They're in a place of desperation. Usually it's people who have not been walking closely with God or even at all with God. And they pray and they cry out to God, God, if you will get me out of this situation, I will do this for you. If you will just help me right now, I will never do this sin again. I will change. I will be different. And yes, we want to walk in obedience to God. We want to be changed by God. We want to work towards positive change in response to what God does. But trying to deal with God, to say, God, if you do this for me, I'm going to give you something. You know, if, if you just try to work with me here, I can give back to you. I can do something. And it's foolish to think that God needs something we can give. That God is not powerful enough to accomplish what he's doing without these sort of promises. It's also foolish to think that we could repay God for what he has done. That there is no way we could match God's gift to us with anything we could give him. That we cannot repay God for his work. And so Jephthah makes this kind of hasty, foolish promise to make a sacrifice to God, a very vague, open-ended one that will get him into trouble here. Verse 34. So the Ammonites have been defeated. And then it says in verse 34, Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged on you, you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So Jephthah made this hasty, rash vow that he doubted some of what God was doing in this situation, and he wanted some sort of extra assurance from God. And so he made this promise, probably anticipating that it would be one of his animals or something that would come running up to him, that maybe a sheep or a cow would come out. And that is what he would sacrifice to God. But unfortunately, because of this lapse of faith, that he is put in this situation and his daughter is the first thing to come out and greet him when he returns home victorious. Not only was it his daughter, it was his only child. So we see Jephthah, we can only imagine how distraught he was in this situation. Um, that he cries out, really almost blaming her at some level, for the pain and the grief that this was about to bring on him. 
And as we study through this passage, it's interesting when I was looking at it, um, and there's a lot of, not a lot, there's basically a split amongst commentators and Bible scholars on what actually happened here. Uh, verse 39, it says, he did with her according to his vow. Uh, so there is one camp of people that believes that Jephthah's daughter was dedicated to the Lord for a life of service, that she was sent to serve in the tabernacle, um, doing some sort of labor there, that that was the rest of her life. And so they were mourning just that kind of loss of a regular life. Uh, There's another camp who believes that, yes, he followed through with what he said, that he was going to put her on the altar as a burnt offering to God for what had happened. It seems looking at the context, that that's probably what happened, at least to me. Again, there's different schools of thought on that. But Jephthah, either way, made some grave mistakes in this situation. And a lot of what enabled him to do this, to make these mistakes, is that he was believing things that were untrue, that enabled him to make this promise and to carry it out. He was believing that God's favor could be bought. He was believing somehow that sacrificing a human being would be something God would want. This was something that was expressly forbidden in the Old Testament law, that they were not to make human sacrifices. This was something that the Canaanites practiced in their religious rituals, but not something that the people of God were supposed to do, that they were supposed to wipe out human sacrifice, and idolatry so that they would not become corrupted and tainted by that. Jephthah also at some level was probably believing that victory was dependent upon what he did, that he was not fully trusting God to give him the victory, to empower him and his army to defeat the Ammonites, that he felt like he had to do something extra beyond what God had already promised to do. And really, in a lot of ways, Jephthah was believing untrue things about who God is, about what God desired, and how God worked. An interesting note along with this, so not only does Jephthah have a wrong idea of what God wants to see, a wrong idea of what he needed to do to secure God's favor, but Jephthah also apparently had some gaps in his understanding of the Old Testament law that they had. Uh, That Leviticus chapter 27 actually gave direct instructions that a person who was promised to a life of service to God, someone who had been uh, dedicated to serve God in the tabernacle, could actually be bought back, purchased back to their normal life with a certain sum of money. And so somehow Jephthah and his daughter did not realize this, that they didn't have that right information. And so kind of like my story from earlier, that I had the right information, I just failed to use it correctly. That I went in to my furniture buying experience unprepared because I didn't heed the information correctly. That I didn't believe what was set before me explaining what I was getting myself into. And so in a similar way, Jephthah either didn't 
have the right information, that there were gaps in his understanding of the law, or he just didn't take the time to study it, to know it, to understand it, and to apply it. And so that led to this horrible mess that he got himself into. It's a difficult passage to read, that we see the people of Israel, who were supposed to be set apart for God and for his worship, going to such a low point that they're engaging in such a horrendous action as human sacrifice, like the Canaanites that they were supposed to destroy. But there's some lessons in this as well, that it's important for us to know the word and to trust God, that it's important that we have right information on how we live our lives. Uh, The the stakes might not be quite as dramatic in our day-to-day life as what we see here. But if we're to walk in obedience to God, to make decisions in day-to-day lives, to worship God correctly, that we have to know God. We have to know what God expects of us and what he desires and what he hates. That we have to spend time knowing God and knowing his word. That that is how we make decisions. That's what's going to enable us to walk righteously and to be wise about what we do. I think of Jesus' words in John 4.24, that God is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. That we have to have both to rightly glorify God and to walk in true obedience to him. And so Jephthah maybe had some spirit, at least at points, but he was missing some key measures of truth as he went through this. And so we see just the pain that that caused Jephthah, those mistakes that he made. And tonight, as we continue our study on, we're actually going to quickly go through chapter 12 here tonight. Uh, So we've got a few more minutes. Um, I know we had... uh, Put this out in the the weekly connect is chapter 11, but we're giving you chapter 12 free of charge as an extra bonus here tonight. So uh, consider yourselves blessed. Uh, Judges chapter 12, verse 1. I promise it won't take too long either. So all of this has happened. Jephthah has had victory over the Ammonites. He's had this incident with his daughter that ends in tragedy. And then we see more issues come up in chapter 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Seems a little excessive. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, They said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. 
Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died, and he was buried in his city in Gilead. So we see some kind of interesting follow-up to this victory. Uh, So this group of people led by Jephthah living on the far side of the Jordan River has this great victory against the Ammonites. And then another tribe of Israel, Ephraim, across the river, hears about it. And they come over and they say, hey, why didn't you call us? Like, you were supposed to let us know. Why did you go to battle without us? And Jephthah says, I tried. You know, in verse 2, he says, I called you and you did not save me from their land or from their hand. So Jephthah responds to the Ephraimites. We tried to call you to come help. You didn't come. So we went on our own. Uh, the Ephraimites apparently are not happy about this. Their response that we will burn your house over you with fire. Um, again, seems a little excessive. Seems like kind of a bad idea against a guy who just led a victorious army against their enemies that you would think it'd be a little more difficult than that to um, take on this leader. And so they have this dispute in verse 4. It says that Jephthah gathers all the men of Gilead. They go to war with Ephraim. They beat them in battle, and then they conquer the ford where they cross the river. And so they seize the ford, and any of the other Ephraimites trying to cross over, they give them this little language test. They say, say the word Shibboleth. Now, apparently at this time, that couple hundred years, they'd been living far enough apart. They'd actually had some linguistic differences develop between the different tribes in this case. And so the men of Ephraim who were trying to cross over, couldn't do the shh sound when they were trying to say the word. So they would just say Sibboleth. So that was their test. If you couldn't say the word right, they killed you. And uh, that was it. So we're told that 42,000 Ephraimites die here. This is a mess. That the Israelites have been worshiping false gods. They repent of that, ask for someone to come save them. God sends Jephthah, who leads them victoriously in battle over their enemies, and then they start killing off each other. This is not how it's supposed to work. And so that happens, and we're told Jephthah judged Israel, at least this portion of it, for six years, and then he died and was buried. Verse 8, we see a few more judges. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him was Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel 10 years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died, and he was buried at Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. He rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died, and he was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. So we get a few more judges here that follow Jephthah. So Jephthah, kind of up and down guy. We see him do a few good things and also some really, really bad things. And then we see three more judges who follow in his stead. And we're not told a whole lot about these guys. It's a pretty brief summary of what happened. Uh, but we do note these guys, Ibsen had a big family. Again, probably kind of like we read last week, a sign that he had married multiple wives. Not the greatest deal. Uh, Elon, the Zebulonite, 
Again, he judged Israel for a short period of time, not a lot. Abdon had a big family, had 70 donkeys, lots of money, probably multiple wives. So we see kind of that continued degradation throughout the book of Judges. Uh, The judges progressively get worse and worse. Uh, that the leaders of the people are more and more sinful, that the people of Israel are getting farther away from God. And at this point, we see their leaders really using their power, probably for personal gain, that these men were wealthy, that they had multiple wives, and that they did probably some good things as they were leading the nation. But the main thing they're remembered for is just having a lot of possessions, not necessarily the people that were supposed to be leading God's holy nation. And so we're reminded as we finish off this chapter of how much people need God. That really the message of the book of Judges, our theme we have, rescue for wandering hearts, that God is so crucial to mankind. That when people wander away from God and from his ways, things go downhill so, so quickly. And we see that throughout the book of Judges. uh, That this next few weeks as we study, it's going to even get worse. That we're going to see Israel marked more by sin than they are by holiness and by worship of God. That they have gone so far away from God and from his ways that they are indistinguishable from the people around them that they need God to step in so desperately. And that's what God does, fortunately for Israel and fortunately for us. That as we saw here tonight, God delivers people in the midst of their own sinful messes. And God delivers us in the midst of our own sin as well. Romans 5 6 or 8 tells us that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so just like the people of Israel, we were living lives separated from God, that we were stuck in this huge mess of our own sinful making. And God was willing to step into the midst of that mess, to send his son to die on our behalf, even while we were still in our sins. That this is the God that Israel served. This is the God we serve and the God that we have the opportunity to seek each and every day. So let's do that as we go from here and remember how desperately we need God, and how much he has done for us. Let's pray. I thank you, Lord God, that you are good. I thank you that you are faithful, that you are sovereign, Lord. I thank you that you are able to work through sinful people to bring about good, and that you are willing to step into the messes of our sin to help save us, Lord, to save us. I thank you that you Don't make us clean up our messes before we come to you, Lord, but you call us to run to you in repentance, God, and that you transform us through that. I pray that you would help us to remember how great you are, how good you are, Lord, how worthy you are as we go through life.
I pray that you would guide us by your spirit, Lord, that you would help us to walk in obedience to you, that you might be glorified in every area of our lives. We ask all these things in your name.